guys. Welcome back for part two. Uh, part one of episode 12 was justice and mercy slash grace because we went down a rabbit hole like we always do. Um, part two is about suffering and prosperity. But before we start, we have been reflecting on part one for the past two weeks, and Rick has a burning question for Ben. Yeah, so you, you kind of left us off at the end of last week talking about asking the question, you know, why this school of thought of why doesn't God just turn off his wrath? Like mm-hmm. if, if, if he can do that and if he's all-powerful, he's sovereign, he can do whatever he wants to do, why doesn't he just turn it off and therefore simplify the entire equation? And you, you let Sam and I bumble and stumble around through the question, and then Sam signed us off before we had an opportunity for you to answer. And so I want to pose the question to you just because I'm genuinely interested in your take. No, I won't. Thanks for asking, but I'm not in. No, You'll uh, have to go back worth, to part one to hear so, any answers. It's worth a shot. No, I, I thought I thought the the response that you two gave was um, pretty sufficient. the The thing that that question makes me think of is a passage in Exodus 33 where Moses is specifically asking to see God um, because of some stuff that's going on with mm-hmm. the Israelites. And one of the things God says is. Um, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pass before you, and I'm going to say my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And then he says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and show justice on whom I'll show justice. Um, and I think, like at first blush, that's that's a terrifying passage. And I think it's intentionally so because there's there's a certain amount of like terror that comes along with like um, in theology. They call it a theophany when God shows up. And almost every time that God shows up, um, formulaically, the person who's experiencing it, the phrasing they use is falls down as if dead. Um, it happens with John in Revelation. It happens with uh, Moses. Um, like that's what happens. And there should be like a certain amount of terror with that. But anyway, the, the point I'm getting at is because those two things are so closely associated, I think it's helpful to understand um, justice as not just being – it's – it's a necessary part of who God is. It's it's wrapped up almost in his name. It's in the nature of his being. It's not just that God is someone who is just. It's that um, justice is wrapped up in the identity of God. I don't know. That's if that, Does that distinction yeah, make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that, that I think also kind of fleshes out extra nuance to what it means when we say, like, because he wouldn't be a God worth worshiping if he wasn't just. But also, I think he, he wouldn't be God if mm-hmm. he was just. And I think it's important for us, especially when we work through life trying to figure out like what what moral behavior looks like for us. It's important for us to have like some kind of pinnacle of um, what right action looks like. And I think that necessarily has to be God mm-hmm. um, because that definitionally, definitionally is who God is. Mm-hmm. He's just. Um, so do you – I'm still I'm, – I'm, you said a word and I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I know that because of <laughs> – what I'm doing right now with the Bible recap. Theophany. Okay, so do you know specifically, off the top of your head, if that theophany was a Christophany? Or if Oh, uh, yeah, it's, that's an interesting question. Because, because I, we talked about that when I was in school. Because I'm thinking, cause so a Christophany would be God presenting himself in the form of God the Son, would be Jesus. And yeah. so if he's talking about justice and mercy as God, then it's easy for us or new believers or unbelievers to to relate the justice side to God and the mercy side to Jesus. But if it's a Christophany and it's God the Son telling this to Moses, then yeah. wow. Yeah, I don't 
All right, we're going to research that and put yeah. it in the show notes. Disclaimer, <laughs> this is a question that no one had any time to prepare for. No, that's fine. Because <laughs> the only reason I'm pausing is because I, I want to make sure that I actually mean what I say when I say it. And I think I do. Because this, this question really did come up when I was in school and we were talking about like the formula of theophany in Old Testament and New Testament. I don't think theologically you can have a theophany without it being a Christophany. Ooh. I, I think to do that is doing exactly what like the Old Testament versus New Testament. Yeah, God. exactly what Marcion did, which is to call them and name them and recognize them as two independent deities. Like the he called it the demiurge of the Old Testament and then Christ of the New Testament. Yeah, I think splitting them. I would agree. I think splitting them is is a bad and maybe even all the way to dangerous Trinitarian doctrine. Like to to say that you can have one without the other. Yeah, and like the other one be completely uninvolved. And I think, I think it helps us to flesh out another reality. And a lot of the time, when we look at what it means for Christ to be um, a revelation of God's will or a revelation of God Himself, we often think about Christ being godlike. Like, wow, look at these incredible miracles God can do. He's not limited by um, nature or reality or time or anything like that. That's incredible. So we think of Christ as godlike, but. Um, sometimes we forget to think about God as being Christ-like, mm-hmm. which means the revelation of God is wrapped up in Christ most fully. Um, and because of that, I think if God's revealing himself, he's revealing, he has to be revealing Christ as well because it's a unified identity. Mm, I like that. It's good. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when we left off um, from part one, we were talking about Jesus on the cross. And I think that that launches us into this discussion about suffering and prosperity. So we talked about wrath, and this kind of, I think, relates, but why does God allow suffering? Is there a purpose for it? Is there value in it? Yeah, I, this, is a, this is probably going to be an unpopular, at least initial, reaction to this answer. I think it is, especially in the fallen nature of humanity, I think it is one of the most necessary things that God offers us as both justice and mercy. I think it's needed. Uh, I I would even probably go as far as to say required oftentimes to allow us to, having been born naturally prideful, selfish, arrogant, self-consumed, self-absorbed, self-whatever else you wanna you wanna throw in there. I think suffering is so unbelievably necessary for us to first recognize who we are. And then when you get this beautiful picture of God's mercy shown through Jesus Christ, suffering is also this unbelievable tool that allows us to understand and relate to a Savior that also understands and relates to us. Got the nod from Ben. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you all for being here this week. So, I I mean, what about the unbeliever, the the one who says – there cannot be a God if all of this exists. Yeah, I, that's always been like a really interesting question to me, especially since like one of the reasons that I ended up in biblical studies was because of an apologetics course I took. And there's a pretty big chunk of apologetics that's dedicated to answering exactly the problem of pain or the problem of evil um, as like a larger uh, overarching part of the problem of pain or encompassing the problem of pain. Um, yeah, I. every time I think about this, though, I'm reminded of the fact that I'm, I'm pretty sure like being able to have a philosophical answer to the question of where pain comes from or who's responsible for it or why it exists has almost no ministerial va- like value to somebody who's suffering. Yeah. Um, a long time ago when I was still doing such things, I was preaching a sermon. <laughs> and uh, 
one of the things that I realized as I was studying for it is how much it seems like you're walking up to someone who's just been hit by a car and is laying there like bleeding out in the road and explaining to them on account of the fact that you didn't look both ways. You didn't press the walk button. There was a car that was traveling roughly 50 miles per hour and it smashed into you at the hip and now you're in this state. So if you're wondering why, now I have the answer like that. That doesn't help, right? <laughs> obviously, and I think I think we do the same thing when somebody. And you have to be careful because in a lot of personal conversations with somebody where you're talking about faith, they may they may mask like a personal pain mm-hmm. um, that they've experienced um, in a philosophical guise. Some people genuinely just want to have the philosophical conversation. And I think there's there's merit to that because for some people it it draws them deeper into something greater, something better, something mysterious, something miraculous. But um, a lot of people will. Um, try to get answers to the pain that they're experiencing by answering that question. And I, I just don't think that's a that's a worthwhile round. I think I would even take it a step farther than what you said. You said there's no there's not a great deal of ministerial value in answering that question. I would even go to the non believer, like I don't think there's a great deal of practical value. Like to go back to the same analogy, like even practically, it doesn't help that person lay in there in the crosswalk that's just been hit by a car. Yeah. Right. It's you know, I'm not I'm in that moment of my life, I'm not looking for the philosophical answer to why this happened. I'm just right. Call an ambulance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get you something that can actually be therapeutic for the pain that yeah. you're experiencing. Sure. And I, I do want to be cautious and make sure that it's, it's understood that like there is a place for trying to evaluate your life and trying to figure out whether or not any of the decisions that you made led to your pain. That's actually like pain exists biologically as a feedback loop to help you avoid certain Mm -hmm. stimuli that cause that pain. Um, and that keeps you safe in the long run. So like, there's actually an important, there's an important function to pain biologically as well. Um, and I think the same, it, it works out the same way in a, in an ethical sense that if you find yourself in pain, it can be beneficial to go through the question of like, whether your decisions contributed to that so that you can avoid it in the future. Um, let me ask you this just to flip the coin, and sorry, Sam, for jumping or taking over, but I, I jumped in on the suffering one. I'm, I'm just interested, Ben, in getting your vantage point on what the theological or formative value is of prosperity of the opposite side of that coin. Suffering is given to us as this thing that allows us to whittle away idols, to get a fuller understanding of who Christ was and be able to relate to Christ, but also even recognizing that moment that we have a God who relates to us in our suffering. Like that would be if you were like, Hey, well, and I also want to say that like, not all pain is instrumental because sure. that's important to me. Some pain yeah. is instrumental. Some pain can be used instrumentally, but yeah. that doesn't mean all pain sure. is yeah, instrumental. I think Some of it's just, yeah, I got to preach this past yeah. week and kind of one of the things I said is like, the storm isn't the most important thing. It's often the the most important thing is always the response to it, right? Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it's, you know, that can be a varying different levels. But, like, I think it's easier and it's kind of become more mainstream, especially in modern Christianity, to embrace the topic of suffering with pastors like John Piper, with people like that that you listen to that dwell on that topic heavily. But prosperity often shows up now in the modern church culture as – depending on what side of this coin, and that's, this isn't the episode, so we're not going to get into that, although I would love to have this conversation too, as this kind of negative thing, right? That we're, if you're good enough, believe good enough, pray well enough, have enough faith, that prosperity becomes this thing that's obtainable and is a measure of your right. success as a Christian. And I certainly disagree with that 
fundamentally as being having any merit in the Bible or anything like right, that. Right, so prosperity, does Job, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but prosperity exists, and we uh-huh. know if prosperity exists, we also know that Romans 8 is clear that God works all things for good, which means prosperity is from God. I guess my question is just if we would, and you don't have to, you can disagree with anything I've said fundamentally, but mm-hmm. if we do agree with all those that God is working all things for good and he's working suffering for good and he's working pain for good and giving those opportunities for things to be beneficial, what role do you think prosperity plays in that? I don't know. That's a really tough question for me to to figure out how to kind of like um, integrate into the system we were just talking about of like what, what part suffering plays. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of examples like we... Part of the struggle is exactly what I was saying just a minute ago, and, and Sam, you kind of mm-hmmed very vehemently, so maybe you got something bouncing <laughs> around in Job. your head about it. Yeah, but like one of the things we experience in Job is that um, there's not a perfect one-to-one ratio ratio between righteousness and reward. Yeah. Um, so we, we know that as fact, and so we know that um, we are forced kind of constantly back to this question of why, why do the wicked prosper and vice versa. Um, why do the people who behave righteously sometimes get screwed over? <laughs> um, yeah, and that's – did you have any thoughts on that specifically, like in, in reference to Job or anything like that? What did your mm-hmm mean? Well, I just enjoyed <laughs> – that sounds crazy to say that you enjoyed studying Job because mm-hmm. the majority of it is about his suffering. Uh, but I remember a takeaway I had was Job's friends or acquaintances – that wanted to counsel him and they just kept trying to give him this advice and back to kind of what you said earlier about the suffering like they didn't need to come and give advice they didn't need to come and give the why or one of them even said basically you brought this on yourself like they just needed to be there just have that ministry of presence so that was the first thing that came to mind that caused my reaction is remembering how much i enjoyed yeah i think that's there's an important piece of that as joe fits into that wisdom literature is that we also have the complete opposite side of that coin as we look at what Solomon does in Ecclesiastes, right? Like Solomon is given wisdom, mm-hmm. which paves the way to prosperity, and I think paints a picture of the opposite side of the coin. And I'll be honest, like I, this is this. I think this is just my cop out nature. I think it's easier for me to intellectually process the use for suffering because suffering rapidly produces in people who are suffering. A spirit of desperation, yeah, right? like when and you humility, get, right? Yeah, you get to somebody who is especially in like deep throes of painful suffering. It's desperation. It's losing our brother. It's those moments, right? That it's like something is happening here that's made me desperate for whatever it may be. And so there's it's so much easier to jump from that spot of desperation to a theological landing point, yeah, because we we understand ourselves as that. But it comes to prosperity. And I'll be honest, like I, I, I steer clear of that one so much, and I hadn't thought about it until we were just talking here, because prosperity to me is horrifying, right? And and, and yeah, and, it's and, all, the question that's bouncing around in my head is like, why would a good God who loves his children make anyone prosper? Yeah, because <laughs> how, how unkind because, can he be? Yeah, because prosperity is it's like, like Solomon has all of the wisdom, all of the riches, all of that stuff, and so he's able to chase down the rabbit holes exponentially quicker than we would be able to, mm-hmm. assuming that you're not listening to this with all wisdom and all riches, which if you are, jump onto our online giving platform. <laughs> uh, but if you're not, and I assume, <laughs> uh, my assumption is most of us are not, and it's the horrifying aspect of it is prosperity is this thing 
that we can chase that ultimately will reveal our need, that we'll we'll get to the Solomon spot, and I've seen this play out, that it's all meaningless. But where that is for people when it comes to prosperity isn't predetermined, right? Like it's, it's, it's usually pretty easy, especially like in seasons of extreme suffering, to figure out where desperation entered that fray. Mm-hmm. Like I, when I got to this spot that there was this recognition, there's no longer anything I can control and I don't know how to respond. That's an easy, quantifiable thing. Whereas prosperity, like my, my, you know, my horrifying thing is like, man, you can be on your deathbed, wealthy, well-to-do, well-put-together, having everything that you need, about to live your, leave your family all that they could ever need for their lifetime because you've been so wise with your money and prosperous and your business things. And there's just danger in that, right? That you never, mm-hmm. you never, it never pressed the need that you had into you. Well, what about, I mean, what about the timing of it? Because Job was restored tenfold to what he had before the suffering came on. Mm-hmm. And so then in his prosperity, he glorified God. Sure. So, yeah, well, and part of me wonders, like, uh, maybe the spiritual function of um, prosperity in certain situations is to allow you an opportunity to be able to give away radically, um, yeah, to right. sacrifice, like, outrageously. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and part of, the, part of the struggle with this conversation is, like, I was listening to a sociologist who was talking about the fact that, like, poverty is relative. Um, so there's, there's impoverished, and then there's having no money and those are almost two different entirely different things sociologically because there's a person who has very little money but has every reason to believe that their life is trending upward because of one thing or another because they're currently in the process of going through like an educational process that will open up the world to them as far as like financial opportunities and stuff like that um and and that makes it difficult for me to figure out exactly what like what what do we mean when we say prosperity do we mean purely financial prosperity like in the case of Job, it was pretty much all-encompassing before and after. Um, we yeah, also don't know how that story carries forward, like after he was blessed yeah. ten times over. And I think that, like even that, like chasing that rabbit that you just kind of brought to my mind, makes prosperity even all the more terrifying because it's it's not like financial is the easy one, right? Especially in American mm-hmm. Western culture, because that's where we default to almost always is looking at the economics of the situation, but. Like now, especially in post-modernity, there's this, you can almost get yourself prosperity and I'll use the word wisdom, but you get what I mean. My my prosperity and my ability to think and my ability to reason, like I have all of these things and that creates this completely alternate sense of prosperity where you reason away pain or need for anything because yeah. it's, I've, I've figured this out. I've prospered to such a spot that it's whatever. Yeah, you also, I, I don't think you get to fully experience the insufficiency of prosperity um, in order to give your life meaning and until you've maybe even achieved it. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about, uh, there was a guy, I can't remember when, and I know very little about this situation, but he basically created a, he was a scientist, a sociologist who created a utopia for rats which is what it sounds like. He just set up like this enclosed environment where they pretty much had all of their needs met. And uh, one of the first things they noticed is that the rats died at like a quarter to half of their life expectancy, Um, which is completely counterintuitive because you think, I mean, the idea is you create this utopia where all of your needs are met and then you can, like for humans, we often think like you can uh, dedicate your mind to elevated things like religion and art and um, ethics and all of that stuff. But, at least for rats, and I have every reason to believe for mankind as well, that um, like having all of your needs met, like 
it, it won't even produce like biological benefits in the long run yeah. because mm-hmm. you're the human body actually needs to strive to have a purpose to move towards. And I think you won't know that prosperity isn't the thing you're moving toward unless you experience it and then experience just how, just how little it has to offer in the long run, unless it's given away sacrificially. Yeah. I think, I think one of the benefits of prosperity and thinking about this is like sometimes prosperous situations, once you get them maybe in the correct lens is allows you to see the unfair weight that you press, that you press on things. Like I, when I get to do premarital counseling with people, I'm like one of the most damaging things that you can do to your spouse is to have unrealistic expectations of your spouse. And what I mean by that is not like that they do laundry and cut the grass, like dudes, we could do a better job of doing laundry and cutting the grass and doing whatever. But uh, like to be the savior, to be my validator, to be the person that gives me meaning in my life direction and those kind of things where like if you find – this has been the heartbreaking things I've gotten to minister to people and counsel people and that kind of stuff. Like if you find the guy that does that or the girl that does that, depending on which person entered into that relationship, like you get to that prosperous spot and then you realize that for whatever reason, they don't satisfy. Mm-hmm. And then something's completely thrown off, not just in you, but in how you relate to them. And it's like, man, I set my relationship up for what I thought was going to make it the most meaningful and beneficial and it's the hand grenade. <laughs> like it's, yeah. I pulled the pin and rolled it in there. Like, here, be prosperous. Here's the list of demands. Like, it, I wasn't the wife that was like, I don't know where I want to go eat. Like, I laid it all out for you, everything that you ever needed to go. And then you gave it to me. And I recognized I heaped an unfair weight on my spouse or on my whatever. I don't care what it is, my finances, my job status, my career, my whatever it may be. I gave this thing an unfair weight, and then I got it, and it's Solomon. I realized this doesn't deliver. Yeah. Well, and I also think, like, maybe even from the from the other perspective or the other side of the conversation that we're having, like, in in my mind, and I think in the biblical text, like, Job is intentionally an exception. It's it's not the common thing, sure. right? For God to gamble with your life. <laughs> um, that's, Thank you, God, for that. Yeah, that's. <laughs> That's kind of an outlier, but it's an important outlier, and I think it does help us to remember um, how it may be the case that the majority of the time behaving rightly in the world usually leads to better things, not worse things. But if that's the only reason you're doing it, you need to know that that won't always be the case. It's not a problem. And you have to. Broken world. It's a reminder of the fact that we actually do need like a a different external motivator than. Um, temporal benefit in order to be able to to be inspired to act uh, responsibly in the world righteously in the world um so yeah it's it's not that uh you should expect i don't know ex- exactly how to like sum that up in maybe a more concise manner it's just like doing the right thing is still worth it and most of the time you will be rewarded um, if you're kind to the people around you, you'll generally have better relationships, for example. Um, mm-hmm. But sometimes you do the right thing, you act kindly, and something blows up in your face. Yeah. So I want to touch on one thing going on in culture right now. There's a new movie out. Maybe y'all have heard of it, and the name is escaping me right now. Have y'all heard is that of this? Sound of Free- Freedom? Yes, I knew it was something Freedom. Sound <laughs> of Freedom. So I haven't watched it, and I've, I've watched um, some of the trailer. But it's about human trafficking, mm-hmm. and specifically children. 
And so this is one of the questions that I I really can't wait to go see the movie just to see the whole story. But how do things like that exist in our like even in our conversation of of suffering? Like, why does God allow that to happen? Uh, That's always such a tough question, and I'm always very hesitant to answer the the blanket question of why does God allow X or why does God allow Y? And there's moments that that's an easily answerable question, and there's moments that it's very complicated. And in situations like this where it's where it's more complicated, I I try to steer clear of answering that question specifically. Well, we've already answered why suffering happens. Yeah, because I'm not him, right? Right. So in this typical, specific situation, it's I don't know. I don't know why, and that's that's been that's one of those haunting questions that our family has lived with after the losing of our brother. And the the, the immediate default human reasoning question is, why do these things happen? And and I, I don't know that we ever get an answer, right? And so I think part of the reason that I steer clear of trying to answer those is because the answer most often for me is I I don't know, right? right? I. I I trust and I know through the black and white of Scripture that God is a God who's sovereign, that's merciful and just, that He's gracious and forgiving. He allows prosperity and works through suffering, and He does all of those kind of things. And I try to draw into Him in a closeness and relationship that enables me to when I can't answer that question, when it's human trafficking, when it's my brother, when it's social injustice in the country that we live in, when it's these unbelievably complex issues— that people want to convince me there's a simple answer for. I go, God help me just trust your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your justice, that you're on the throne and that you're sovereign. And I I recognize that maybe for this podcast and what we do, that's a (laughs) cop-out, that maybe I'm I'm copping out as an answer. But I think not copping out would cause me to extrapolate more from Scripture than I'm willing to. I can't, I can't glean more black and white from Scripture than what I've gleaned from it under the power of the Holy Spirit, and so that would be my answer. Yeah, I'd also add, like, almost definitionally, you you shouldn't be comfortable or satiated by any answer that could be given, um, because it instills in us a sense of longing for something greater and something eternal, uh, where that is not the case, where that kind of suffering doesn't exist. Um, I think there's also something to be said for the fact that, like, for whatever reason, and I don't understand the full extent of this mystery, like, God has chosen for us to be the moral actors in the world that are reflective of um, who he is. And so the the first thing I think whenever I'm struggling with a question like that, like, why, why is there such intense human suffering that manifests itself in places like um, the trafficking, trafficking of children and... I think the Christian faith forces us when we're being intellectually and spiritually honest with ourselves to ask, why are you allowing that? Because you're intended to be the one that's actually acting in the world to reveal who God is. Um, and that's a tough question to wrestle with, but it's one that I'm I'm responsible for wrestling yeah. with. And I think that's another one, going back to where we kind of started, as you look at suffering and the benefits of suffering, even suffering externally outside of you that you see, I think that few things in the world compel to action like seeing injustice. Like we even saw Jesus model that in his ministry. You know what I mean? And I, I think, man, if you're if you're wrestling with that question of why I love your thing, I, my my you know my almost pushback to be would change your question and ask 
why am I not more involved in purchasing a ticket to a movie? You know, because it's it takes seven seconds in Google for you to figure out a thousand organizations that you could either go help, give to financially, I mean, to whatever extent, abandon your entire life up to this point to go and, and see those kind of things stopped around the world. And are you going to be able to stop all of it? No, but you'll be able to stop what God has ordained for you to stop mm-hmm. and, and be obedient to Him. And so, yeah. Mm, that's good. Well, that wraps up part two. We will be back in two weeks with another episode. Um, check out the show notes. I also want to highlight in the show notes, we're going to add one of our local partners, iCare. Um, they are on the ground in our community battling back against human trafficking. So it's not just in the movie theaters, but it's it's here. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks.